the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say hello. Good afternoon to you. Welcome on board. Good to have you with us for this Tuesday, second day of April. And uh, we took yesterday off as a practical joke, but then some site might say the show sounds like that most days of the week. <laughs> no, seriously, had uh, had a great uh, Monday and uh, glad to be back in the saddle with you on this wet, stormy Tuesday. Hey, a quick program reminder. Coming up later on tonight, we're going to be joined in hour number two by our good friend Bob Lapine from Family Life Today. We'll be talking about the upcoming Family Life Marriage Conference that's going to be held here in the San Francisco Bay Area. The weekend, to remember, that will be, see if I can remember the dates now, April the 14th, 15th, 16th, or 12th, 13th, and 14th. I'm going to go with 12th, 13th, and 14th. The rest of my notes are elsewhere. At any rate, um, we're going to be giving away some tickets so you will want to stay tuned for that. We've got some couples passes that are worth $175 each that we'll be giving away to two couples. And uh, details on that coming up tonight in the 6 o'clock hour. Also, a reminder, we won't be here on Thursday, but we hope that you will be joining us on location at um, Hillside Church in San Jose. We're going to be doing our um, kind of quarterly Lifeline on the Road program, talking this time around about what's happening to the church, why we are seeing in some corners a pretty alarming drop in attendance. And much of George Barna's research has, has borne this out. The big question is, to what do we attribute all this slippage, and what should the church be doing? We're going to be joined by um, three outstanding Bay Area pastors, Pastor Keith Crosby, Pastor Cleveland Prince, and um, a good friend, um, Pastor and Dr. James Darnell. And we'll be uh, spending some time with you. That'll be live and free this coming Thursday, 7 p.m. at um, 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose at Hillside Church. We hope you'll uh, make an effort to join us for this special event, free, open to the public. So come on out, join us, uh, be a part of our discussion, great panelists, and a very important and timely topic. Again, uh, live on location, Lifeline on the Road, this coming Thursday at 7 p.m. Complete details for the free event on our website at KFAX. Com. All right, let's net down to uh, the cases here, shall we? We're going to talk a bit about what's happening with the haves and have-nots in America and the widening chasm. Um, we've heard a lot about the one percenters versus the 99 percenters uh, for uh, a number of years now. And, and I think, well, the dialogue about that has sort of died down, at least for the moment, on a non-political year. Um, it is an important conversation that we need to be having. Um, because as some would argue, if we don't do something to address the widening wealth gap, this could completely explode. This being capitalism could completely explode in the United States. The fact of the matter is and remains since the 1970s, stagnant wages. Many attribute that to Richard Nixon completely taking us off of the gold standard. Um, we've seen, of course, a, a change in technology, which has driven a lot of manufacturing and labor-related jobs overseas. You no longer need to be uh, in country, you can be connected via the internet and pretty much work anywhere, right? So it forces America to have to compete with a labor market that is very broad and very inexpensive, relatively speaking. So what happens to the quality of life, the standard of life here in America? And uh, some are saying, you know, for the average American worker, for the middle class, uh, we're soon seeing that evaporate, that America will eventually, on this same trajectory, if something isn't done to change it, wind up with two classes, the very rich and all the other folks. 
All right, let's go a little bit deeper. Joining me is conservative commentator, Dr. Larry Finnewa. He is a Washington Times political writer. You, if you've ever been to uh, the Washington Times, you know it have uh, no doubt have read his insights and musings. And he joins us to talk about this. Um, riddling the question is feudalism our future. And Dr. Finnewa, great to have you back on the program. Well, it's good to be here. Let's talk about this, this this widening chasm, which, you know, as we've seen discussions in, in recent years over the uh, the 99 versus the one percenters, and we know certainly that the concentration of wealth amongst the one percenters at the very top has been uh, ever increasing, while the percentile of wealth for the rest of America has been on a downward trajectory. And as you aptly point out in a new article on this very topic, um, if we don't do something to address this, um, it could very well backfire and explode or implode on America. Walk us back, if you would, because this this notion of a strong middle class is relatively new. In fact, in some respects, it's more of a, um, a 20th century phenomenon that you date back to the likes of Henry Ford. Tell us more. Well, as you remember, I'm sure uh, Henry Ford instituted the five dollar day for his uh, factory workers in the uh, 1910s and that <clears throat> showed actually a fundamental understanding of the dynamic of capitalism capitalism uh, means uh, the I mean the purpose of capitalism is to uh, as, as a macroeconomic, from a macroeconomic point of view, is to raise the level of the standard of living of everybody in the in the country, and not just uh, the the uh, few uh, few people, because if you get to a point where you have eighty percent or or more of the wealth of the nation concentrated in a uh, in a in a very small group of people. Uh, and everybody else is, is uh, seeing their their standard of living slowly uh, and sometimes not slowly disappearing. Uh, the uh, people get mad, and uh, we have uh, one one of our uh, commentators is uh, call he calls he calls his uh, diagnosis uh, the pitchfork economics, and uh, the basic idea is that. If enough people get uh, angry enough over a uh, declining uh, period of uh, a declining uh, standard of living over a long period of time, that they are going to get mad and they are in fact going to pick up the pitchforks and uh, we'll have another revolution. And uh, he see, and then uh, some people actually, including. uh, uh, one of our futurists uh, sees that this uh, they would maintain that this uh, violence, uh, this anger has already uh, begun to uh, take over a good part of American um, American life, and that uh, there's a widespread dissatisfaction among the middle the middle class uh, because their uh, part their piece of the pie, so to speak. Uh, is uh, declining uh, every time we have a little uh, increase in uh, inflation. Uh, the uh, the uh, buying power of the of the of the dollar is uh, decreases, and and so that's one of the major factors. The other one is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, what we call the digital age, and that has made. Uh, the American labor market, uh, an international phenomenon, and uh, the uh, basic uh, captains of industry decided uh, when they saw that they could get uh, uh, wages uh, for their workers uh, in India and uh, Pakistan and in China uh, at uh, Five to ten percent of the American wage, they jumped at it, with the result that uh, manufacturing, uh, fact, in overtime left the left the United States. 
So I guess the, the, the basic issue is if we don't uh, get back to the idea of a uh, way to share the uh, tremendous uh, increases in productivity that we have, that we have uh, engineered here in the United States, if we don't learn how to uh, share that with the uh, population at large, uh, we are going to be back to the masters and serfs of feudalism, and that will be another French Revolution. And, and there really seems to be, as you outline in this new article, is feudalism our future, a fundamental disconnect here. And I realize at a level, perhaps, um, if, if you're operating from the 1% range, this would appear to be counterintuitive, meaning that you're trying to get uh, as much output for the least amount of expenditure as you possibly can. But at the end of the day, you're largely producing products that are going to be consumed by the middle class. But if you continue to squeeze out the middle class, that the middle class can no longer afford your products, suddenly at the end of the day, you, you've essentially lost your customer base. And as you alluded to Henry Ford earlier, I mean, he, he realized, and I, and, I, and I recall from history, um, most of his uh, peers at the time thought he was absolutely crazy to institute a $5 a day uh, wage. That that was that was absolutely ludicrous. That you're basically um, uh, you know giving away all of your profits, and yet there was something that told him if we lift the middle class to a level where they can actually afford to purchase the very products that they themselves are manufacturing, that at the end of the day, you know, the uh, the rising tide lifts all boats, and, and certainly that was true, and it took the uh, the market crash in 1929 to put the kibosh on that, and eventually post-war, we, uh, we recovered and went into one of the most incredible periods of prosperity in American history, where indeed the ability of, of spreading the wealth around made anybody who wanted to be successful um, and content uh, able to do so. And, and one of the keys in that period of the post-war uh, prosperity really was the emergence, in fact, the triumph of uh, organized labor, because the uh, people that were against the $5 a day wage uh, in uh, 1910, were, uh, they were their, their children were still in charge of the American uh, manufacturing uh, uh, the, the car industry, for, for example, and um, so they and so they weren't going to give away their profits. And what caused the what caused them to do that ultimately was uh, that the uh, organized labor uh, was able to uh, carry its message and carry the day, uh, so that uh, in fact, and I I I, I would I'm going to talk more about this next week, but it's my contention that uh, organized labor actually won. They won everything that they were after. They won them pensions and and sick leave and and med- med- medical uh, health care and all the all the things that made life e- much easier for the mass, for the uh, members. But the problem was uh, once they uh, they won in the American public and, and became actually the standard for uh, all corporations and, and not just the uh, members of the labor uh, unions but also management and everybody else and then in, in my opinion uh, they kind of lost they kind of lost they, they won their they won the game and then they didn't know what to do next and as a result uh, they've been in a long period of slow decline but I'm saying that the, the 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 only answer I can think of is that the profits from the companies that are uh, that are being um, uh, so pro- that are being so successful in in generating ink and generating wealth, the those profits have to be shared with with the right, with the workers. And it seemed to me that uh, if you do that, and you're going to get you're going to get opposition, um, and you've got so so one problem is how do you get management to 
to to uh, actually initiate such such profit sharing. Well, and, and not just management, but getting the shareholders to agree to something like that, because at the end of the day, sharing more of the profit amongst the rank and file means less benefits uh, for those who are shareholders, and that becomes a bit problematic, at least short-term. I mean, there, there's a short-term problem to this and a very much longer-term problem that I think you're attempting to address, and I think it's going to mean some short-term pain in order to enjoy long-term gain for everyone. But how do we get to that? And I, I want to explore this notion a bit deeper after a quick time out here. If you've just joined us, we're visiting in this segment of Lifeline with Washington Times conservative political writer Dr. Larry Fedowa. Um, he's more the author of more than 150 Washington Times articles, including this most recent one, raising the question, is feudalism our future? We'll take a brief time out. Let's get back to more of our conversation right after we check in with traffic. Hanging out this evening at the KFAX Traffic Center, we have Nick Domenici with the latest on your Tuesday ride home. Hey, Nick. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Dr. Larry Fedowas with us today, Washington Times conservative political writer. By the way, you can um, get his musings along with information about this most recent article we are discussing called Is Feudalism Our Future? at Dr. Fedowa's website, which is simply mypoliticalinsights.com. That's mypoliticalinsights.com. Let's talk about the the labor issue here. You alluded to the strides, the advancements that that uh, were gained by labor, and you know even San Francisco has a long history with involvement in the the labor movement. The Longshoremen's Union uh, was founded here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and. Folks that have been around for a while might even remember some of the big riots uh, along the the Embarcadero in the 1930s. And they were successful, together with other unions across the country, in addressing things like wage hours, paid vacations, safety standards, health care, etc., etc. I have to wonder if the challenge here today, though, Dr. Feta, was more complex in the sense that if, if the argument here is that there needs to be greater strides made in creating a livable wage the problem, of course, is the disparity. I mean, for example, uh, to be considered just breaking middle class in San Francisco, you have to earn $200,000 a year. And yet that same $200,000 a year salary in a place like Wisconsin would, con- would consider you wealthy. How do we deal with the fact that America today has these huge disparities in the cost of living from one section of the nation to another? Well, I don't know if you, if if you're really going to ever solve that because it depends upon a lot of things, population density and uh, transportation, and and not only that, but uh, the structure for uh, new uh, business and new uh, inventions and so on. But what you can do is you can make the uh, rewards for being a a good uh, employee uh, commensurate with <clears throat> the uh, increases in um, in productivity and therefore in profits that uh, are uh, that that happen that are a result of uh, of good of good management and a good a successful company. But to do that, you're going to have to go beyond what I call the lifestyle type benefits that that were won by labor in the uh, in the uh, period post-war uh, into what what I'm calling the luxury the luxury benefits and that means that we're not we're not talking about uh, uh, we're not talking about rewards and compensation based upon time but we're talking about on the basis of results and and uh, that that could mean uh, a really significant uh, the the two hundred thousand dollars you're 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 mentioning if um, if we had if you have an industrial base that was that supports that kind of a uh, an income for uh, middle class workers and we're not talking about kids that are just out of college necessarily but but. Uh, 
journeyman and and uh, and and uh, you know more experienced people. All the details have to be worked out, but basically, I think that they should be uh, given shares of the profits and the form in which that that the form that I'm advocating that that would take is uh, shares of either options or actual uh, 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 shares of stock, stock that uh, would be uh, so that you would get your your regular salary and your regular compensation in, in dollars but but then your uh, uh, your luxury your luxury uh, I'm not going to call it a tax but your luxury uh, uh, Bonus becomes is is in the form of shares or or at least options, and in that in that if you do it that way, then you you uh, overlap the uh, shareholder base that includes both uh, employees and non-employees and people on Wall Street and so on. Um, it seems to me that that is the at least the outline. Of a possible way to uh, to proceed, and it certainly but, gives the employees skin in the game um, and a motivation to not only excel personally but to see the company excel. Because again, uh, the water rises all boats together. Um, I guess one of the things would have to be talked through is okay, that works for companies that are publicly traded. That that is beneficial for the larger employers in the country but uh what about the medium-sized companies that they're that are privately held uh i mean do, do they is there some compelling uh, maybe tax benefit for them to look at becoming public as as a means of um or i guess there could be you know uh class a private shares held uh within a company that would do the same thing yeah and and you know you, you right there in your own um uh, in your own neighborhood you've you've had many of these High tech companies that got started basically with uh, with options, stock options. That and I'm sure you know all about that. Uh, that's a that's a common uh, technique in uh, in startups and in, uh, in the high tech industry. Uh, they, in fact, it got to the point where they were a little bit. It was almost out of uh, out of control. But it the, the idea is if 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 we get uh, of uh, an uh, affluent uh, middle class, then they buy all of the things that that's our market, at, and it's the market that everybody in the world is trying to get to anyway. And we already have it. The thing we have to do is we have to cultivate it. Yeah, and we have to make sure that it's going to be there for future generations. Because at the end of the day, um, if that is a declining market, I mean, let's face it: the bulk of the goods that are manufactured and sold, or the services provided, are targeted toward the average Joe, middle class individual. If we price them out of the market, we lose the very target demographic that is our customer base. And when the customer base goes away, uh, guess what? The whole thing collapses like a potential house of cards. It's it's a good insight, and it's certainly a dialogue that I think we as a nation need to start seriously having. Because, again, if you look at this widening gap, as Dr. Fedowa does, uh, you begin to realize that uh, this has got all the earmarks of ending very badly. And, um, you know, historically, ours would not be the first nation that uh, that collapsed not because of an external enemy coming in and attacking us, but rather collapsed from the inside, essentially imploded. Uh, some have done so because of political reasons, uh, but it's not unheard of for a nation to collapse economically. Uh, certainly economics was a major factor in the collapse of the old Soviet Union. Some important lessons here to be learned. The article is again called, Is Feudalism Our Future? You can find it at Dr. Fedo's website at mypoliticalinsights.com. That's mypoliticalinsights.com. Our thanks to Washington Times conservative political writer, Dr. Larry Fedowa, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 531, they tell me it's time for traffic. Music usually accompanies traffic, so let's uh, find out what song uh, Nick is dancing to. Nick Domenici's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick?
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Those two witnesses were the entire case for the prosecution. Supposing they're wrong. Couldn't change my mind if you talk for a hundred years. But what does it mean? The odds are a million to one. It's possible. But not very probable. I mean, they're born liars. Only an ignorant man can believe that. We're trying to put a guilty man in the chair where he belongs. Who tells you that you have the right to play like this with a man's life? You can't send someone off to die on evidence like that. He didn't change his vote. I did. One, two, three, four, five. I'm convinced. Not guilty. You lousy bunch of bleeding Ah, uh, yes, indeed. An incredible film, 1957. Henry Fonda and 12 Angry Men. Um, today, that almost seems to be a romanticized version of what a jury pool looks like. Let's face it, for most of us today, when we see that we get that little envelope showing up from the county, it's all about, what can I do to get out of it? Wow. We've gone from the jury being one of the most fundamental freedoms of protecting and providing fairness to our rights when accused of some crime or whatever it might be in a civil case or criminal, um, to something that, quite frankly, we, we seem to abhor. We criticize juries when they hand down verdicts. We say the jury pool has been tainted, and we work real hard to try not to ever be assigned to a jury, which has always raised questions in my mind about, well, what becomes of the notion of the ability as promised in the Seventh Amendment to have a uh, right by uh, jury and to be uh, have our case heard in front of a jury of our peers. To talk about the state of juries today and what he calls the jury crisis is Dr. Drury Sherrod. He is co-founder of Madison and Sherrod, a jury research firm. He's also a social psychologist with an earned Ph.D. from right here in the Bay Area, Stanford University. He's a member of the American Society of Trial Consultants, the American Psychological Association, and the Society for Experimental Social Psychology. And Dr. Sherrod, great to have you with us. Let's talk about this. There has been a major, I guess, paradigm shift that's happened to the, the notion, the attitude of and for and about juries, uh, really making, as I, as I remarked in my opening uh, comments, um, that 1957 film, Twelve Angry Men, almost seemed to be an idealized version of, of what juries look like today. You know, you gave a really nice overview, I think, of how people tend to view juries. And I think you're exactly right. <clears throat> and what's interesting is a trial by jury really is enshrined in the Sixth and Seventh Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It's maybe the fundamental basis of our democracy. It's when the people speak truth to power. And yet, here are the facts. It's shriveling on the vine. It's dying. It's vanishing. There's a whole phenomenon called the disappearing jury. If you look at the numbers, it turns out that... Um, Less than one-half of one percent, less than one-half of one percent of all civil trials filed in a year ever reaches a jury. If you look at criminal trials, it's less than one-half of one percent, I mean, less than half, it's less than one percent. So almost the same. Uh, trials are not reaching juries. juries the, jury, the jury is shriveling on the vine. We hear comments about uh, communities that have backlogs and that uh, the the courts are just overwhelmed with uh, hearings and things of this sort, Uh, and and there's probably a modicum of truth to that. We've also seen a a major paradigm shift, and and I think a lot of this has been driven by corporate America to move away from the judicial system to more private uh, arbitration or mediation, which I think there's a lot of benefits there, Uh, certainly if you're trying to control costs and reduce attorney's fees, but there's also been talk about the ability of uh, companies to uh, basically shop for the right mediator and have a little bit of influence on the the outcome of a decision. So more and more contracts are written in a fashion that says, if you decide to take us to court, you can't. We have to settle our grievances through arbitration. Is is that fundamentally undercutting, in your opinion, uh, Dr. Sherrod, um, a, a very valuable constitutional right then? Yeah, once again, you gave a very nice overview. And the, the simple question is, if the system is broken, whose fault is it? Is it yours or is it um, the system? And I think you, you, uh, you gave a nice sort of outline there. What's replacing trial by jury? It's really two things. 
at the criminal trial level, uh, trial by jury is being replaced by plea bargaining. That uh, the accused person will uh, agree to a lesser crime in order to have a guaranteed lesser sentence. That amounts to not trusting the jury. At the, at the civil trial level, what's happening is trial by jury is being replaced by settlement. So many cases settle, even just as they're about to go to trial. Um, they settle at the last minute. Or by what's called alternative dispute resolution, ADR. That's where instead of uh, the people making a decision, you have an expert, an arbitrator, a mediator, or there are whole companies that have retired judges that provide private personal judges that you can hire. So the question is, who, um, who's, who's right, really? I mean, should you really turn it over to experts, these experts? Are they as biased as jurors but in different ways? Um, are they really wiser? Um, does he end up doing a better job? And what happens to democracy? Does democracy suffer when we turn over uh, justice to paid professionals? It's a really interesting question. And I wonder if maybe there's a couple of factors here. Obviously, we have to differentiate between the, the, the criminal arena versus the civil. But, for example, in the criminal arena, uh, we've seen cases that, at least in terms of popular opinion, seem to go sideways. Uh, let's use, for example, one of the best-known ones, the O.J. Simpson trial. And, and many that would argue, well, those positions within the district attorney's office and, and the prosecution have become so overly politicized, and oftentimes they can't really guarantee or or um, feel good about a potential outcome when they go before a uh, a jury and they're afraid of people getting off and then as a result it damages their image from a political standpoint and so I, I wonder if maybe there's been some sense of politicization of of the criminal trial process that as a result is is forcing prosecutors, at least from their perspective, to feel as if they have no choice but to try to uh, get a settlement before it goes to trial. Now, what makes the OJ case interesting is whether or not it actually was politicization of the trial. Um, at, that, at that time, I think the national opinion polls show that 85% of African Americans thought he was innocent. 85% of whites thought he was guilty. Uh, when when African Americans are interviewed, they would say things like um, almost any uh, African American in the L.A. area had been called out, uh, called over by the police if they were driving or questioned by the police. They had a view of the LAPD as an unfair organization, which convinced them that the evidence might have been um, the, the the blood samples might have been tricked with, the evidence might have been tricked around, that the the cop was um, was a racist. Anyway, what's interesting here is different people saw the facts differently. It's one of those cases where a trial by jury has to wrestle with one of the facts. The Seventh Amendment says we are triers of facts. But if we don't even see the facts similarly, how do we try them? For example, in another celebrity trial, the Bill Cosby trial, the jury deliberated for 52 hours, which was longer than the actual uh, evidentiary portion of the trial. And well, they spent a whole day trying to decide on the meaning of the word reckless. Now, you and I would probably think reckless is a simple term. But to the jury, they actually couldn't come to a uh, common understanding of what reckless meant. And they sent a, uh, a request to the judge to clarify, and the judge sent the note back, use your own common sense. Hmm. So, you know, but in, in that case there, it almost sounds as if there's a degree to which there have been uh, maybe either willfully or otherwise uh, efforts made from the legal viewpoint to try and 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 overly complicate things. I mean, for example, uh, on, on an ever-increasing basis, if, if you look at surveys done um, of potential juror pools and you ask about things like DNA evidence, uh, overwhelmingly they will tell you that, oh yeah, no matter what, you've always got to believe the DNA because the DNA is virtually flawless. And yet we're seeing more and more examples where that's being proven not necessarily to be the case, but there's a sense of bias going in. And I have to wonder if, if there's a degree to which attorneys take advantage of some of those things, you know, it's, 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 it's Bill Clinton. Well, it depends on what the definition of is is. That layers in a degree of complexity, all of a sudden now, maybe one of the reasons why people don't want to serve on a jury beyond the time commitment is they look at it and say, my life will not be my own for however length of time that the trial goes on for, and then look at all that I have to deal with if it's a celebrated case on the backside, my life will never be normal again. You've raised up an interesting point, because the issue here is, what is the human brain capable of? A trial by jury goes back almost a thousand years to the, Anglo, uh, the Magna Carta in small rural Anglo-Saxon villages, where the, the, the trial was hardly a trial as we know it today. 
basically the king's officer would show up with his horses. They would uh, assemble a variety of people from the village, like 12 men, never women. They would hear the case, and then they would deliberate. The whole thing would take an hour or two. Up, up through the, uh, the 19th century, trials were very, very brief. Jurors would hear several trials in a day. They would retire and read several verdicts at once. But this was what the brain was capable of. The brain really evolved to tell simple stories based on narrative, to arrive at decisions that way, not to do a complicated, slow, methodical, calculated analysis. So for 900 years, trial by juries worked with the human brain. And then uh, the cases got more and more complicated, discovery got more and more complicated, experts became more complicated, trials became six weeks, six months, um, really exceeding the capacity of the brain when you think about it. And so one of the solutions to make trials better is to actually present information differently, to respect that the brain is looking for stories and to organize the evidence into a narrative. Really nice research shows that as soon as jurors start hearing anything about a trial in the opening statement, they begin to make, their, make up their mind so that almost three-quarters can reach a verdict decision during the opening statement before they've ever heard the evidence. And much of what they talk about during deliberations is not the evidence at all, but um, events and experiences from their own lives. And the key point here, again, is that jurors make up decisions early, they create stories, they use stories to guide what evidence they attend to, and the stories are pulled from their own life, and the stories influence verdicts. Yeah, and that's an interesting point that you make, because there's almost a romanticized notion, at least the way it's presented, that somehow um, a jury will sit down and, in an unbiased fashion, listen to all of the evidence, listen to the arguments presented by the defense, by the prosecution, and then only when the judge says, okay, we'll allow the jury to now be dismissed to the jury room to deliberate, to actually begin analyzing what you've heard over the last six days, six weeks, six months, and draw a conclusion. And and while that might sound like a wonderful thing to strive for, uh, I think reality would suggest, as you're talking just from pure human nature position, that uh, early on uh, decisions are being arrived at, uh, perhaps privately, but, but arrived at nevertheless by members of the jury. And then the ability to come in and, in the complicated world in which we live, turn off, in a sense, any of our preconceived notions or biases about a particular topic or presentation of evidence, that's increasingly difficult, too. And I want to explore that a bit deeper when we come back to more of our conversation with Dr. Drury Sherrod, because in this day and age in particular, with the advent of electronic media, how do you go about finding a completely unpolluted or untainted jury pool. In the old days, you could say, well, we'll just move it to another town because they're not reading the same newspapers. They're not exposed to the same information. So anything that's been out in the press will not taint the juror pool. What country and under what rock do you have to go to to find that today? Do we need to completely perhaps rethink how we do jury trials in America and preserve them in such a fashion that it protects the fundamental constitutional Seventh Amendment right. We'll come back to more of our conversation. The book is called The Jury Crisis. It's a very compelling read, and i got to tell you, you, you don't have to be somebody that's necessarily you know interested in, in legal matters or has a background in jurisprudence to pick up this book and enjoy it. Uh, I think for any of us who can raise their hands and say they've ever received uh, a warrant to come and uh, serve on a jury. Yeah, we all have, and some have even been impaneled. Uh, you know, we, we all have a fundamental interest in this. If not from the standpoint of perhaps one day serving on a jury, what about the other thing that we need to really be concerned with? And that is, what if someday a set of circumstances that are completely unforeseeable today may put us into a position where we have a case that needs to be tried before a jury, the outcome of which, the decision of which, by those 12 angry men or angry men and women today, could impact our life forever. What of that? We'll come back to more of our conversation with subletter author Dr. Drury Sherrod as Lifeline continues. All right, let's get a look at traffic real quick. We've got the latest. Nick Domenici's got a look at your ride home from the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick?
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Okay, are we ready? Uh, all those voting guilty, please raise your hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, that's eleven guilty. Who's voting not guilty? One. Right. Eleven guilty, one not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. Boy, oh boy, there's always one. <laughs> Welcome back to the conversation. A bit of an audio clip there. The Henry Fonda film, 12 Angry Men from 1957. And boy, things have changed drastically. Attitudes about juries, the way juries function, the way trials function, changed enormously. As detailed inside the pages of this new book called The Jury Crisis, What's Wrong with Jury Trials? and how we can save them. The new book is available, by the way, online at thejurycrisis.com. That's thejurycrisis.com. Its author is with us today, Dr. Drury Sherrod. Dr. Sherrod, let me ask a, big, a question that I alluded to just before the break, and that is that uh, the, the advent of electronic media means that information flows everywhere from every place all the time. Is the notion of even being able to find an untainted jury pool in more uh, public or celebrated cases, is that something that we have to just completely dispense with? How do we go about finding fairness in that sense, uh, where in the old days you could move from one town to another, nobody knew anything about it. Today, you'd have to move to, you know, Timbuktu. No, I think first that lawyers overestimate the amount of knowledge that people bring with them to the courtroom. As a jury consultant, I've been involved in lots of um, scores, scores, hundreds of jury selections. And lawyers always think these people are going to walk in knowing everything about the case and already have made up their mind. Often the people know nothing about the case, or they, they might have heard of it, but no, don't really know what, uh, why it's important. So I think that's overrated. On the other hand, I think the, the question of how we assemble a jury is extremely important. Various court rulings have uh, said that we sh- we should, uh, we're entitled to a, trial, a jury of one's peers. The whole question is how can you assemble peers in a, in a country as diverse as America. And it turns out that uh, there are lots of levels of problems. For example, um, 15% of people don't get the jury summons when they're sent out, either because they have moved or haven't left a, uh, a new, um, forwarding address. So that, and it turns out that 15% usually are, ma- are mainly people who are lower-income people who have to move often, who, uh, who don't have arranged dress changes. After that 15%, another 12% of people who actually get their summons just never respond to them. So you subtract 25% of the whole sample because either they don't get them or they don't respond. Then when people show up, there's a variety of excuses that are granted. Just because, for example, their employer won't match their income won't, won't, if they're making $15 an hour, and they won't get in. in on, if they show up for trial, they'll get maybe $25 for the whole day, and the employer won't make up the difference. Or they're the only caretaker for an elderly parent or a small child or they don't speak English, or they have um, a physical problem. So those people get excused. Then there are excuses for cause, where somebody has had such a similar event in their own life. For example, if it's a car crash, they've had a wreck that was similar to the wreck in the, uh, in the case, then they've already sort of made up their decision. And so they get a cause strike there, because they've already made up their mind. Then you're down to peremptory strikes, where lawyers get 6 to 12 to 15 peremptory strikes. They can just strike somebody because... They got a bad look from that. They don't like the way they, they look. Or they think, I've never been able to confuse, to, uh, to persuade a woman who looks like that woman. So you really don't end up with a jury of one's peers. You end up with a strange collection. And there's, I think, in my book, I talk about lots of things we can do to make it more like a jury of one's peers, like granting fewer excuses making sure more people get their sum and some other reasons like that. And I have to wonder, and I, curious, curiosity going to your own field of expertise, I've, uh, while I've never been impaneled, I've sat through the questioning and uh, seen dismissals done by the judge, done by the prosecution, done by uh, the defense attorney. Uh, and, and sometimes I've wondered, gee, it, it almost feels from, from the gallery like there's, there's all this picking and choosing going on, which is, of course, exactly what's taking place. Obviously, the defense wants to have jury members that would potentially be more predisposed favorably in their direction and and the prosecution in theirs. Has that become too much of an art and science? Are, are, are we digging down too deeply when it comes to the kind of information we're trying to extract, or is that a good thing? 
it's both science and art, and it's partly a, a good thing. There's some problems. Uh, as a jury consultant, I've, again, worked on so many trials where we will have conducted jury research trials in advance. So we've presented a mock trial, a mini version, a two- or three-day version of the actual trial, and, so, and had several hundred jurors take part in it. So we would know exactly what type of people would reach what kinds of verdicts and why. So um, we would have that information. But once actual jury selection happens is, it's like a chess game. Lawyers play this intricate game, and they think, if I, if I choose, if I um, excuse this guy, the old rich white guy, then who are they going to excuse? Or, and, then you, and then lawyers think, and if I do exclude the old rich white guy who knows too much about cars, then who's going to replace him? Who's left in the jury pool? Who's randomly going to be the number that replaces the old rich white guy? Is it somebody worse, less preference? Um, so jury, it's, jury selection is, is both the science of knowing what kind of questions predict verdict best and using those questions during voir dire, and then the art of knowing when to stop uh, striking and, and, and anticipating who's going to fill in a strike. See, and I have to almost wonder from 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 a a citizenry viewpoint. While certainly I, what you've described, I don't believe in any way violates the letter of the law or the intent of the Constitution. I wonder if there's a degree to which it sort of violates the spirit. I mean, clearly, if I'm if I'm on the defendant side, um, having a defense attorney that is doing the research and 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 going to the experts like yourself to get as much information possible to try to be predictive as to how the jury might vote and therefore um, impact the way I'm presenting evidence uh, it certainly works to my favor. But then I have to wonder, does that at a level sort of a- end up at least uh, violating the spirit of, of the way this process should go? Or am I wrong? I think you're right. If the argument is made that one side can um – afford to run these expensive mock trials in advance and hire people like me and stage the whole thing and, and as an outcome have uh, highly verdict-predicting voir questions. That's the problem. Um, this is obviously a, a, a deep topic that we need to maybe spend some more time. I wish we had a whole hour tonight when we can get you back on the program again, because I think the listeners would be very riveted by this. Because, again, all of us have the potentiality being impacted by this, whether someday you get impaneled or someday you're seated there uh, at, at the defense table. Um, from your perspective, Dr. Sherrod, in, in a nutshell, what do you see as maybe the one or two key things that need to be done in order to, to fix this process, in order to essentially, as your book subtitle suggests, to save jury trials? It occurs at several levels. First, the judges could, uh, con- could conduct trials in a way that makes much more sense. You know, when, jurors are so, when, when the trial begins, the judge doesn't give any instructions to them. They can't take notes. They sit there and listen to, say, six weeks of complex evidence. Say it's a laser surgery machine. They know nothing about laser surgery. They've just been plucked off the street. The judge doesn't give them any instructions, and uh, they can't take notes. And then just before they, they were retired to deliberate, suddenly the judge gives them maybe um, two hours of arcane information they can barely understand, if at all, about how they should apply the law. That needs to be straightened out and simplified. And then the biggest after that is just um, letting, instead of letting, letting the, most, the, most, the wealthiest accused person in a, in a trial hire the experts like me, let, um, let intense jur- uh, jury, tri- jury questionnaires be the norm so that everybody has access to it. And then um, the, the, most, the key thing is when the trial begins, the lawyers have to tell stories. This is a, a contest between stories, not between evidence. They have to tell a story that organizes the evidence in such a compelling way that the jurors really understand what happened. So they have to think like a juror, go with the brain instead of against the brain. And does there need to be something, and I'm thinking about the number of times, and I've probably been been called uh, 20 times in my life, uh, never impaneled, a couple of times wound up spending two days, and almost universally as you sit in the, the jury room, Everybody is trying to calculate how they can get out of this. The argument either being they don't have time, they're not going to get paid, there's no one to care for their kid. Uh, There's a lot of legitimate excuses, of course, people that don't understand English well, and for them it would be difficult to understand the the evidence presented and things of this sort, uh, and many others that just come up with a variety of excuses. Do, Do we need to revisit how that end of jury selection, jury compensation is, is handled in order to, to go about providing a larger, broader uh, potential audience or a p- potential jury? 
Yeah, when you think of what the juror's job is, it's a supremely important job in the democracy. It's maybe it's, it's maybe more important than voting. Agreed. Uh, it's really when the people choose the power. And so this thing has to be simplified and made more attractive and, and made such that more, more jurors want to do it. And when somebody receives a jury summons, instead of cringing, you know, they ought to say, wow, how cool, I just got a jury summons, you know. I get to be a participating citizen in democracy. That's how we ought to feel. Whenever people tell me, how do I get out of it? Instead of telling them how to get out, I say, you know, you'll, you'll feel honored by being in it. It's your chance to play an important role for democracy. Yeah, and, and certainly we all have to ask ourselves the question when that notice comes in and we think about, gee, how can I get out of this? Uh, can you imagine now if the tails were turned and uh, your life was on trial or you were facing a civil suit and you're thinking about every one of your peers all asking the same question, not what can they do to do their constitutional duty to provide a service, but rather what they can do to get out of it? Wow, scary. The book is called The Jury Crisis, What's Wrong with Jury Trials and How We Can Save Them, newly uh, published by Roman and Littlefield. You'll find it available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and, of course, online at thejurycrisis.com. Our thanks to author Dr. Drury Sherrod for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Very educational. All right, 605, jury's in on traffic. Let's see what is being rendered by (laughs) the judge in the case. Nick Domenici with the latest at the KFAX Traffic Center. Your Honor. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.